man. He makes all things new. You know, the greatest thing that he made new for the believer, the person who has trusted in Jesus, the greatest thing he made new was our heart. Uh, Ezekiel 36 talks about how he removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that can be molded and shaped and changed. And um, I am grateful to serve a God that didn't leave salvation up to myself uh, because I would not have saved myself. But thank God that he makes all things new, including dead hearts uh, being made alive. Welcome to Epiphany Church. We are grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to gather with God's people this morning. And I pray that everyone is staying warm uh, and dry. There's a couple of things that I wanted to push to you before we jumped into the text this morning. Uh, One of them is just a reiteration of what we saw during our announcement, and that is anniversary is next week. And I pray that you guys are excited about anniversary. It is a big deal that we are making one year. Amen. Amen. It, It really is a big deal. And, you know, oftentimes in the Old Testament, God would he would call the children of Israel to slow down and remember Remember what the Lord has done. And so that's what Passover is all about, is slowing down, reflecting upon the faithfulness, the goodness, and the sovereignty of our God. And that is what we're doing for our one-year anniversary. And I know we're kidding around talking about the after parties at turn up, but we really want to celebrate. That's what we're doing. We're celebrating not ourselves, but we're celebrating what God has done. Uh, Let me just go ahead and say there's really two things that I, I hope happens next week. Number one, I hope that you bring somebody with you to celebrate um, and, and join in with you. Second thing is get here, not even on time, get here early next week because we do expect a little bit of an overflow. One of my mentors, Dr. Paul Tripp, is going to be preaching. Um, and if you guys know anything about his ministry or anything about his books or uh, his counseling, he is a dynamic, dynamic person. He could be preaching anywhere in the world. In fact, he does preach all over the world, and he decided to come and hang out with us and celebrate our one-year anniversary. So pray that you guys would uh, would get here early next week so that we could uh, grab these seats um, early. The second thing I really wanted to push to you before we jumped into the text is our fourth Wednesday night prayer and Bible study. And I want to highlight prayer uh, because in the beginning, we just were doing Bible study, but we realized that there's a component that we're missing if we're not praying, especially before we're jumping into the word of God. And so our Wednesday nights will consist of a half an hour of prayer, seven o'clock on the dot. Uh, Most of us are in this room and we're on our knees and we're praying to the Lord. Um, And it's something about corporate prayer. Like you can pray individually. Of course, you should pray individually. You can pray at home. But there's something when God's body gets together and we all lift up our voices in concert and go before the throne of God. So at seven o'clock, if you guys could meet me here and, you know, I know you guys are getting off of work on Wednesday and uh, trying to get the kids ready and all that stuff. Um, But if you could get here at seven, seven to seven thirty, we're praying. And then at seven thirty on the dot, we will uh, do a small time of worship and then we'll jump to the word of God. So please, guys, this fourth Wednesday night, we only do it on once a month we do this. It's a good time for us to shut down our small groups, give our host um, a break. By the way, can we thank God for all of our small groups and our hosts? If If you're a small group leader or you host, you open your house every week for us to track our lives in your house. Can you just raise your hand? We are grateful for all of these leaders and hosts. They, uh, they are certainly a blessing to us. All right, grab your Bibles and meet me in 1 Peter 
your Bibles or your devices, and if you're grabbing those devices, move past your text messages and any apps that you were on this morning. If you could meet me in your Bible app at First Peter is where we're going to spend our time. Um, let me quickly say, as you guys are turning there, Denzel and Nicole are here. I didn't announce last week or the week before I saw them that they just got engaged. So can we thank God? I, I love it. I love marriage, man. I love when, when two people get together and decide to deepen their commitment to one another. So I'm grateful for that. We are continuing our First Peter series. We've been going through the entire First, the book of First Peter is living as exiles is what we've been calling it. And the reason we've been calling it that is because that is exactly what we are. If we've trusted in Jesus, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are an exile, meaning this is not your home. You're a sojourner. You are this. You're an immigrant. This is not your home. This is uh, the world's home. This is this is not where our final resting place and our final dwelling place will be. And Peter does an amazing job in this letter of 1 Peter, really helping us to understand that this isn't our home and helping us to learn how to live as we are passing through. In fact, that's exactly what we said on the first week we got together to go through this book, is that we're just passing through. Genesis 3.19, remember that you are but dust. And life is so short and life is quick, and it would be a shame for us to try to wait for heaven to be to live eternally. No, you can live here now. Just pass through. Don't stock up. Don't store up. But this place is not where we are. And Peter, today in our text, he's going to remind us of how to live as exiles and serve a Christ that is not seen. Serve a Christ that is not here. He walked the earth, but he's not walking here now. And Peter's going to show us that this morning. So if you could meet me in verse number eight, We'll try to do a little bit more than we, we typically do. We've been doing two verses at a time. We'll do a little bit more today. Eight through 12 is where we'll be. It says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. You should circle this phrase because this is something that we talked about last week. It says, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. To you, by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things to which the angels long to look. I simply want to spend our time today, our short amount of time today, preaching from a topic entitled Faith in an Unseen Christ. Faith in an Unseen Christ. Let us look before, look to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we are pleading with you to open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things out of your word. Many of us have submitted our lives to your word and uh, submitted our lives not to just understanding it academically, but we've submitted our lives to what it is that the word of God says about us and how we should apply the word to our lives. And so we sit in, in here this morning with great expectancy. Uh, you are not here, as the text tells us, in terms of physically here with us now. So what does that mean for us? How do we navigate through a life where 
we don't have you here. That would be so much easier, but yet we have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move upon us today. Pray that you would grant me physical strength, but also clarity in the text and help me to be faithful. Pray that Jesus Christ would be the hero of our text this morning and we walk away worshiping Jesus Christ. It is in his name and his name alone that we come before you. Amen. One night, a uh, house caught on fire and there was a young boy that, that lived in the top floor, not lived, but his room was in the top floor and his father's room was downstairs. So when the house caught on fire, he had to flee to the roof to find shelter so that he wouldn't be consumed by the fire. Well, his father stayed downstairs and his father was able to get out the front door. And so as he's on the roof, the father is on the ground and he's yelling, jump, I'll catch you, jump, I'll catch you. To which the boy responds, I cannot jump because I cannot see you. Well, all he saw was flames and darkness and smoke. And yet the father's on the ground still going, you got to jump, you got to jump, I will catch you. And the boy responds, I can't jump because I can't see you. And then the the father responds back and says, but I can see you. And that's all that matters. You should jump. And that is exactly what Peter is, is exhorting to these persecuted exile believers. He's pushing them to have faith in a Christ that they can't see. Christ that they have not seen. A Christ not just, not just that they haven't seen now, but that they've never seen. They've never seen the ministry of Christ walking the earth. And Peter is pushing them to have faith. And faith is really at the center of this, of this passage today. Faith is the central theme in which Peter is talking about. And he concludes his thought in verse number seven, which we dealt with last week when he talked about the revelation of Christ, talking about the second coming of Christ. Now, here's what you need to know. In the second coming of Christ, everybody will see Christ. But the first time he walked this earth, the readers that would have taken this letter that Peter is writing have never seen Christ, although they will see him one day. And Peter here seems to offer hope to a troubled, I mean, various trials Christians. He seems to offer hope by helping them to understand their faith in a Christ that is not seen. Now, in verse number eight, Peter's going to help to build their confidence, even though they can't see him. Pick me up back in verse number eight. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy. That is inexpressible. Let me lift up the first part of that. Though you have not seen him. Again, Peter here clearly suggests this morning that his readers have not seen the incarnate Christ. They did not see Christ walk the earth. But here's the interesting thing. Peter has seen Christ. And so although these readers haven't seen him, the one that wrote the letter saw him, not only saw him, but would have walked with him. They would have, he, Peter would have saw Jesus' ministry as he was preaching, great messages. He would have saw his ministry as he was healing people that were sick. He would have saw his message as he was putting the religious leaders of that time into their place. He would have, he would have saw Jesus Christ suffer, die, and be risen again. So Jesus is a, I mean, Peter is a key person. If you want anybody to tell you about the unseen Christ, you want somebody to tell you it that has seen Christ. And so this morning, I haven't seen him. I know you guys are super spiritual, like Christ had breakfast with you this morning. Uh, but then there's another group of us in here that are holding on to faith. Although we haven't seen Christ, we believe in him. We believe in the work that he did. Here's what Peter says in chapter five, verse number one. He calls himself a witness to the sufferings of Christ. So Peter is clear. Listen, I've seen this 
Christ, we know that Peter was undeniably one of the first disciples that were called by Jesus. We also know that Peter wasn't just one of the disciples, but he was part of the inner circle of the disciples. Yes, there was 12, but there was three that Jesus rode deeply with, and Peter was one of them. We also know that Peter was the voice to the disciples. The disciples thought it, but Peter said it. Often, over and over again, you'll see this. And so this is the person that is going to be explaining to us the unseen Christ, the one that walked with him that says, listen, I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And this witness to the sufferings of Christ really often was a, this personal testimony often was a cause of tension in the early church. Because what believers were doing in the early church was they were dividing themselves to say, hey, I actually saw Christ, so therefore I'm a super Christian. And those of you who haven't seen Christ, you're not as spiritual as we are. That's, that's the tension that was going on in the early church. But Peter seems to suggest here that you're not a second class Christian because you haven't seen Christ. If, if that was the case, all of us in this room are second class Christians. Like there's no special place in heaven because the apostles or the ones in the first century saw Jesus walk the earth. No, we all get access to heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter is saying, listen, you're not second class Christians. In fact, it's to the contrary. He actually commends them for their faith and not seeing Christ. How do I know that? Look back at the verse with me. Verse number eight. Though you have not seen him, here's, the, here's, here's him commending them. You love him. I love the fact that Peter shows us here that love for Jesus is the first mark of Christianity. You cannot say you're a Christian and you don't have love for Jesus. You can't say, I love God the Father, but that Jesus, I don't know any, I don't know too much about him. Listen, you're not a Christian unless you love Jesus. So Jesus, loving Jesus, having affections for Jesus is the first mark of being a Christian. Peter here shows us, listen, I'm not saying though you haven't seen him, you heard about him. Peter's not, notice, Peter's not saying though you haven't seen him, you memorized some of his teachings. He's not even saying though you haven't seen him, you taught people about him. He goes deeper to their affections. The one question I have for you this morning is, do you love Jesus? I'm not saying do you tolerate him? I'm not saying do you know facts about Jesus? The question on the table is, do you love Jesus? Do you have affections for Jesus? In John chapter 8, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. I'm going to turn there really quickly. In John chapter 8, Jesus does something amazing. He's talking to Jews that don't believe in Jesus. And he's talking to these Jews, and, and he says something at the end of this disagreement that they have that really sums up this love for Jesus. This is what he says to the Jews that don't believe in him. Verse number 39 of John chapter 8. They said this, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. Here's their response back to Jesus. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Look at Jesus' response. If God were your father, you would love me. And so what you're seeing here is Peter affirming what Jesus already said, which is love for Christ. If you don't love Christ, it's no way we can say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Let me put some Bible to back it up for us. First Corinthians 16 verse 22 says, if you if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with you all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love that is incorruptible. A sure sign of a true Christian is someone who loves Jesus. That is why we as a church really hold tight to what's called Christocentrism which means a heavy focus on Jesus Christ. We do that because we want to find our affections in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want you to walk out and be confused what we believe. We want you to walk out and say, that church loves Jesus. That is the one mark of Christianity. Christianity is not about doctrinal statements and ethical ways of living. Christianity is summed up in love for Jesus, period, that's what Christianity is. When we set out to plant this church, um, one of the things that I did often before I knew any of you, well, most of you I didn't know, I would walk these streets of Bedstuy and I would just pray really two specific distinctives for our church. The first thing I prayed is that we would be a church that was marked by loving the word of God. I wanted us to be a church, like I said, man, Lord, like if we don't do anything else, like let us really love your word, not just memorize it, not just quote it, but let us genuinely love. And so we gather ourselves. You'll never see us gather ourselves on a Sunday morning or on Bible study and not gather ourselves around the word of God because we have love for the word of God. And I pray that you guys would scatter and get back to your places that you dwell and dig back into the word because you love it. But the second thing I pray, when I used to walk these streets before I knew you guys, I prayed that we would be marked by genuine love for Jesus. Hear me, as your pastor, that is the one thing I pray consistently for you, is that you would love Jesus. I mean, genuinely have affections for Jesus. My greatest day, the greatest joy I would have is if somebody came to me and said, what church do you go to? And I said, I go to a church called Epiphany Church. And they respond to me and say, oh, that church full of Jesus lovers, that would be the greatest day for me, is that you would have affections for Jesus. Notice that's what Peter says. He says, though you haven't seen him, then he marks him. He says, you love him. And as we move into being a year old as a church, hear me, Epiphany, we cannot move from our love in Jesus Christ. It's easy for a church to say, all right, I hit the one-year mark. Let's move on to do some other stuff. We did that Jesus thing. Let's move on to try to... No, listen, if you're waiting for us to do something else, there's nothing else. Like, this is it. Like, loving Jesus is it. He's the goal of why we gather. He's the goal of why we planted this church, loving Jesus. I mean, that's a rhetorical question, but I really want to hear your response. Do you love Jesus? That's the, that's the, one, that's the one reason why we are gathering. Listen, I would have stayed in corporate America. Promise you, I wouldn't have planted a church if we we're going to be a bunch of people that just gather information. Gathering information doesn't save you. Loving Jesus does. Loving Jesus does. And so I pray that we would be a church that move, wouldn't move past it. In fact, you hear me. There were churches in the New Testament that moved past loving Jesus. I mean, if you read, the, the, Jesus wrote a letter to one of the churches. Read Revelations 2. He wrote seven letters. One of them he wrote to a church called Ephesus. And in this letter to this church at Ephesus, he commended them for their good works and their, their doctrinal fidelity and their moral integrity. And then at the end of it, in verse number four, in chapter two, he says, but I have this one thing against you, that you abandon your first love. And then at the end of that, he says, in verse five, he says, and repent and do the works that you did at first. Hear me, as we move into one year, 
I'm not impressed that we're moving into one year if we're not moving in loving Jesus more than we did the previous year. Look at what Peter says. He says, you haven't seen him, but you love him. And the day I can tell you now as your pastor that I stop proclaiming love for Jesus, you should leave this church. In fact, the day I stop loving Jesus, you should just, I mean, know that I lost my mind. Like, just put me in a, in a crazy house. I've lost my mind if I do not love Jesus. Peter here shows us that. He says, love Jesus. But he doesn't just say love him. Look at what verse number eight says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him. Look at what he says. You believe in him. Peter shows us here that you do not see the resurrected, enthroned Christ sitting on the right hand of the father. You don't see him now but you believe in him. So what Peter is showing us here, he's giving us us a clear reference to faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And this reference to faith is not merely some mental assent. Faith in Jesus isn't just saying some profession, I believe him. No, faith is submitting your life to him. Believing in Jesus is submitting your very life to not just what you think about Jesus, but submitting what the scripture tells us about Jesus. He says, listen, you don't now see him, but you believe in him. John chapter 20, we have somebody that was a disciple called called Thomas. Most of us know him as Doubting Thomas. In John chapter 20, Thomas and and, and, uh, the disciples have this interaction where the disciple says, hey, this is after Jesus died, before he resurrected, uh, after he resurrected, before he ascended into heaven, We have this interaction where the disciple says, hey, we just saw Jesus. He just appeared to us. And what does Thomas say? Thomas says, I don't believe you. He says, unless I see the marks in his hand and not just see them, unless I put my fingers in the mark. That's when you know you really are doubting. I got to put my fingers in the marks of his hand. I got to put my hand in his side. He says, unless I do that, I will never believe that what happens in verse number 26 Bible says that they're eight days later, they're locked in a room. The door tells us that it, the scripture tells us that the door was locked. Disciples and Thomas are in this room. And what do you see? Jesus appears and Jesus says, yeah, go ahead, put your hand, go ahead, put your fingers in my hand. He probably lifts up his side a little bit and says, put your finger right there in my side. And after he does it, he says, listen, do not disbelieve, but only believe. And then he goes on to say, which is for you this morning. He says in verse 29, Have you believed because you've seen? Then he says, blessed are those who believed and haven't seen me. So Jesus called you blessed because he said, blessed is the person that believes. If you've trusted in Jesus and you believe in Jesus, you're blessed because you believe in a Jesus that you have not seen. Peter affirms what Jesus says. That's the logical conclusion we can get from this statement. You're blessed if you believe in Jesus and don't see him. And Peter says that as well. Peter says, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. This is what you call faith and trust. This is what Christianity is summed up in. Proverbs chapter three, verse five says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Second Corinthians five, seven, for we walk by faith and not by sight. For this is the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, one, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Jeremiah 17, 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Over and over again, the scripture calls us to faith and believing in Jesus Christ. When I was on vacation a few years ago, 
My wife thought it was a good idea to convince me to jump into a cave that had a 300 foot drop to hit some water inside of a cave. And when you stood at this cave, you literally couldn't see the water. Well, what you saw when you looked at this cave was pitch blackness. My wife said, do it because you'll have fun. And I'm like, this doesn't look fun, but I'm on vacation, so I'm going to do it. And so I stood on this cave and I literally jumped in and she was right. I did have fun, but I didn't have fun, fun because I measured the, the, the distance between the place you jump and the water. I didn't have fun because I understood the construction of the cave. I didn't even have fun because I understood the dynamics of the water. I had fun because I had faith in what my wife said. You're going to have fun. And this is what Peter is calling us to. This is what Jesus does. Jesus says, believe in me, although you don't know the details of how you get from earth to heaven besides the gospel. You don't know how that works. It's, a mystical, it's mystical to us, but yet we have faith. We believe in Jesus, and that's what brings us to salvation. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Believe in Jesus. And don't just believe in him. Peter uses the word believe here, and, and, and the verb that he uses here talks about continual action, meaning you don't believe in Jesus when you first believe and then you stop believing. It means you keep on believing. There's never a point where we stop believing. That's what Peter shows us. And Mark shows us that too in Mark chapter five with the story of Jairus' daughter. He was a, a, a ruler in the synagogue. His daughter was sick. He runs to Jesus and says, I need you to come back to the house with me because my daughter has died. Well, as Jesus is walking back to the house, Bible tells us that a messenger comes and says, your daughter died. And then it goes so far as to say, don't bother the master anymore. And Jesus says to him, keep on believing. In fact, the word believe that he used, that Mark uses, is the same exact word that Peter uses. Continual action. Jesus says here, listen, don't fear, but only believe. Keep believing. And so these believers here would have believed in Jesus. And Epiphany Church, I don't know what bad news you've gotten this week. I don't know what you've walked in here with, but here's one thing I can promise you. No matter how bad the news is, Jay Iris just heard that his, his daughter died, but yet Jesus says, don't fear, keep believing. So I don't know what you've walked in here with, but one thing I can promise you is to keep on believing. Don't allow fear to stop you. Don't allow the bad news to stop you. Keep believing. Now we're about to hear familiar language. Look back at verse number eight. By the, way, by the way, last week I felt like I spent most of my time in one verse and I had a few minutes for another verse. So I'm going to try to move past verse number eight a little bit quicker here. Verse number eight says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Here's familiar language. And rejoice with joy. Why is that familiar? Because we heard that last week. This is the second time Peter has called these persecuted believers to rejoice. The second time. Like, remember, in verse number six, he said that you have various trials, but yet he used the word grieving and the word rejoicing in the same sentence. And now he is a little bit more explicit this morning because he doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice with joy. And later on in the letter, we're going to see him talking about rejoicing. And what Peter is showing us here is that rejoicing in the midst of trials is the appropriate response for the believer. And only, only a believer can rejoice in the midst of trials. Non-believers can't rejoice in the midst of a trial because we know that our hope is greater than that trial. Because one day, remember, that trial will 
stop. And so Peter here says rejoice. And the word that he uses rejoice. I told you the New Testament is written in a language called Greek. And the word that he uses for rejoice means much leaping or dancing. And last week when I told you that, I thought you would have been a little bit more excited about that. You know, I said, man, the word rejoice here is much leaping. You guys are like, cool. You're writing your notes like, but think about this. Like, understand what Peter, like, I don't think we understand the magnitude of what Peter is saying in the midst of trials, rejoice. Like, only the believer, the one that knows that he was dead in the trespasses of his sins and has been made alive together with Christ has a reason to rejoice. Yet we sit in church, and I know, you know, we're, we're a quiet bunch. We're still trying to figure this thing out. But Peter didn't tell us to be, requi- be quiet. Peter says rejoice with joy, and the word rejoice is much leaping, and yet we're sitting in quiet, knowing that Jesus has redeemed us from the enemy, knowing that Jesus has saved us. And we think for some reason that much leaping is only, it should only be done by an ethical, a, um, not ethical, but an ethnic group or a group that has, like, that's not my disposition, that, you know, theologically and distinctives, I can't, you know, I can't do that. But the reality is, Peter says twice, rejoice, much leaping. So you should be leaping when it comes to talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There should be no, there's no such thing as a quiet Christian. It's just not. Like, look at David when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back in the Old Testament. Bible says that he was like, he was so excited that he danced out of his clothes. His wife, like, you going crazy? What are you, what are you doing? He was so excited that he danced out of his very clothes. And if you've never worshiped to the point where you were thinking in your mind, oh my God, I look stupid right now. You, you don't know what you're doing. You're not, you haven't really worshiped yet, but we must worship. Amen. Thank you for a couple claps. We must worship as David worshiped. Why? Because Peter says it twice here. And he uses it again later on in the letter. Rejoice. And he doesn't just say rejoice, but rejoice with joy. And he's, he's, this joy that he's talking about, sometimes it gets so good to you that you have no words to explain it. You ever get there where you just, I mean, you were so overwhelmed with the goodness of God that you couldn't even explain it? Peter talks about it in our text this morning. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. Here it is. It says that it is inexpressible. The word inexpressible, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. The only time. He's saying you should be so overwhelmed with rejoicing. And remember, remember that these folks are persecuted right now. I'm not talking like lights cut off, my phone bill got cut off. I'm talking they're being beheaded. And sawn in two. And Peter is saying, rejoice with joy. That is inexpressible. It means unutterable. You can't even put words to the goodness of God, even in the midst of trials. I'm told of a story of three men, and all three of them were trying to explain the goodness of God. And two of them were so eloquent in how they explained it. And one of them just was so overwhelmed with how good God was that he couldn't even talk. He took the two men outside gathered some sticks and started a fire and he dug up a worm and he takes the worm and he puts it by the fire. And right when the fire was going to consume the worm, he snatched the worm out and said, that's how good God is to me. Like that is how it should be for you sometimes. It should be to the point where you literally can't, you lose words trying to describe how good God is to you. He says it's inexpressible. 
In the midst of hardship, it is inexpressible. And all of us in here should be in that place. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine talks about the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some men count slowness, but he is patient, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. When you know that God, like when you realize that you're the worm and that God not only snatched you out, but he decided to get burnt on your behalf, that should cause something in you. It should cause you to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And that's what the Lord wants for you today. Like, think of you. Like, think of how trifling we are. Jesus said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that person. I'm going to make him my son. I'm going to make him my daughter. Now, how do we come to faith? How do we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Peter explains it this morning. Verse number eight, I'm going to read it right into verse number nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Here it is, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Wait a minute, my faith has an outcome? Remember last week I was talking to you a little bit about the dangers in the prosperity gospel. Because the prosperity gospel will literally say you have enough faith and you can get a car and you can get healthy and you, you'll live your life healthy and there, you know, you'll live your life with materialistic stuff. But Peter shows us the outcome of our faith isn't a new car. The outcome of your faith isn't new clothes. The outcome of your faith isn't even good health. The outcome of your faith is the salvation of your soul. That is what Peter is pushing us to us today. He's saying, listen, genuine faith has an outcome and that is salvation. But let's keep going because he pushes us here some more about this salvation. Look at what he says in verse number 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What you just see Peter do here was Peter showed them that the unseen Christ that you love that he just talked about, the one that you believe in, which he just talked about, Peter shows us that this is the Christ that the Old Testament prophets talked about. Like, I don't think we understand how powerful that is, that the Old Testament prophets talked about Jesus, because what we think is Jesus just showed up in Matthew. And we think Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like we see Jesus and John, and then that's it, and then we talk about, no, All of the Old Testament was leading up to Jesus. Remember when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders and they said, he said to them, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you find life. John chapter five, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus says that the Old Testament prophets, they don't just find its fulfillment in Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. If you've been coming to Bible study, we've been talking about that. We talked about the Passover and the Passover lamb and how on Passover they would every year they would have this lamb that was they would cut up and then, you know, they would sacrifice and they would eat. But we see that Jesus takes the place of the Passover lamb, which is why we don't sacrifice no more. Like if Jesus, if the Old Testament wasn't about Jesus, I should be cutting up an animal right now. But we're not doing that because the animal, the lamb of God came down to earth and became the ultimate sacrifice. And so what Peter is saying is, listen, the Old Testament prophets had a predictive ministry. They predicted the sufferings of Christ. And I dare you, I encourage you, 
Go back to the Old Testament prophets, the minor ones and the major ones, any of them. Go to them and see. You Prove to me they're not talking about Christ. Read Isaiah 53 and tell me that's not about Jesus. Of course they're talking about Jesus. That's what Jesus says, that you search it. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And hear me, understand something. I just came from Israel, and I promise you, Israel is 3% Christian. Let me say that again. The Holy Land is 3% Christian. Everything else is Orthodox Jews that do not believe in Jesus and Muslims. They like understand what Jesus is saying here. And what they do is they take the Old Testament and they'll, man, they'll find so many ways that it's not about Christ. Yet Jesus is like, you search the scriptures because you think you find life in them, but they're talking about me. The very scriptures that they hold to is talking about Jesus Christ. I had the opportunity to sit at an Orthodox rabbi's house, a rabbi that went to rabbinical, rabbinical school. I mean, no, he, he memorized the first five books of the Bible. Like, have you done that? Like Leviticus, have you memorized Leviticus? Like this rabbi, I got to sit at his house and he got to talk to me about the Old Testament. And I said, can, can I just get five minutes? Well, here's how the Old Testament is about Jesus and got to walk. Of course, he didn't find that cute or he didn't find that funny at all. He didn't find I mean, at all. He didn't find it funny. But the reality is the Old Testament, the first five books, the rest of the, New, the Old Testament all point to Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that the Old Testament prophets talked about your salvation, which is, which is crazy. Because if you, if you read the rest, like look at verse number 12. It says it was revealed to them, talking about the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. Like, understand that the Old Testament prophets were not writing like about their generation, was writing about you and I sitting in this room. And they probably didn't even know it. The Holy Spirit inspired these men to write things about Jesus that they didn't even see. This unseen Christ we're talking about, they didn't see, but they're writing about Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's going to show a distinction here, though, because in verse number 12, yes, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, but he's also talking about those that preach the good news, talking about the New Testament preachers, the apostles in the New Testament. And we can fast forward that all, all the way to today. It says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Did you see what happened? Peter's saying that the Old Testament prophets had authority to write scripture, but the New Testament apostles have the exact same authority. Now we read this and we're thinking to ourselves, yeah, that's not that big of a deal. But can you imagine how huge that was when they're reading this letter for the first time? They're reading this letter for the first time hearing that the Old Testament that they possibly know about, the Old Testament prophets and the Peter that is writing this letter has the same exact weight and authority as the Old Testament prophets. And can I push us to today? The same Holy Spirit that inspired the prophets, the same Holy Spirit that used the apostles is the same Holy Spirit that's here right now as we gather around the word of God. Like that is huge. So as you read the word of God, 
Know that the Holy Spirit is there. Notice that Peter here, Peter here uses preaching by saying that it's important for your own spiritual development. If not, he wouldn't have said those that preach the good news to you. Now, I'm not trying to promote preaching because I'm a preacher. Well, I'm probably a little bit. But other than me trying to promote it, the scriptures are promoting that preaching the good news is important which is why we don't come in here and gather around just songs. Yes, we enjoy songs and we need the worship team to bring us into a place of worship. But if we leave here and do not get to the preach word, like this is the central part of our gathering, gathering around the word of God. And my job isn't to try to be prophetic as the Old Testament prophets. My job is to just point to what the scripture already said. I just point back to what the Old Testament said and what the New Testament said and show you that it finds its fulfillment in Christ. It finds its fulfillment in him. And so Peter is saying, listen, preaching is important. But notice, not just preaching, not just preaching, preaching. What did Peter say? The good news. We must sit and gather ourselves around the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Like what, what is, what's the good news that they would have preached? The good news starts bad that you are dead in your sins. You and I cannot get it together. And the, the good news, the, the bad news becomes worse. After you're dead in your sins, there is a holy God that will judge you. Now, I know you're like, well, why is that a big deal? Listen, sin and holiness can't mix. And so if God is holy, I love that facts. If God is holy, and Jesus, that just threw me so off. <laughs> If God is holy and you're a sinner, hear me, it doesn't take, this isn't rocket science. You and I are condemned in our sins if there's a holy God that's going to judge you. But here's the good news, that Jesus Christ came and took your sin, died on your behalf. Remember that worm I talked about? He became that worm for you. And he wasn't snatched out. He was punished for your sins. And now we get to be presented. Those that have trusted in Jesus get to be presented as though we lived like Jesus. Like this is unbelievable to me. That, and see, if, if the gospel was left up to me, if God said, man, you figure out a way to get to heaven. Like we'd be eating cheesesteaks. That'd be a requirement. You know, like we, you have to go down to Philly. Don't get these cheesesteaks here in New York. This ain't it. Go down to Philly. But that would be a requirement if I was in charge. But God says, mm-mm, I'm going to show you how this thing is going to work. This is going to be the biggest scandal of all. I'm going to send my son, which is innocent, which no deceit is found in his mouth, which Peter is going to tell us later. I'm going to send that Christ to become sin. This is what 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, for our sake, I love my, one of my favorite verses, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear what, what, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians? That Christ who did not know sin became sin, which means he took your sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. So in other words, there was this great exchange that happens. It's called imputed righteousness. He took your sin and put it on himself and then took his righteousness and put it on you. And so now the question is, well, how can a sinner stand before this holy God? We stand before a holy God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when Peter says, listen, 
those that preached the good news to you, the good news he was talking about was that you and I should be condemned, but we are pardoned because of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you in this room. I don't know if you've trusted in this Christ. I don't know if you've, if, if you've really put your faith in him, but you need to today. If you don't, you are that worm by the fire that's going to be consumed. You're not snatched out. I don't believe in a false sense of security. Listen, I'm going to be explicit only because I love you. I'm going to be explicit with you this morning. If you have not trusted in Jesus, the wrath remains. But if you've trusted in him, the wrath didn't, he didn't just excuse his wrath for you. No, he poured it out on Jesus Christ. And that is the good news that we proclaim. That is what Colossians chapter one, verse 28 says, him we proclaim. Like that's what that's on my mind every single Sunday morning. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Romans chapter 16, verse 25, I'm ending here. Now unto him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you come in here and I preach something other than Jesus Christ, I'm out of order. You should tap me on my shoulder and say, I didn't hear Jesus today. And I need to repent. What Peter says here talks about the preaching of the good news. Every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, I'm convinced, like, I, I've been there where I've been a part of churches that assumed that I understood the gospel, that assumed that I knew Jesus. Hear me, I wasn't saved until the age 28. But I went to church all my life. Assume that I understood this good news about Jesus. Yet, at the age of 28, a friend decides to share with me the gospel. And I don't, I don't know who you are in this room, but here's what I know, that some of you haven't trusted Jesus. And because of that, the very wrath, wrath that was poured out on Jesus is going to be poured out on you. Peter secures these troubled, persecuted believers in these five cities, he writes this letter to them to show them their security in Jesus Christ and show them that this, this man, this isn't plan B. Like Jesus being sent to die on a cross is not plan B. How do I know that? Because Peter talks about this concerning your salvation. The Old Testament prophets talked about this. And so consider that before you fail, there was already plans set in motion that you would be redeemed and saved through the work of Christ. My greatest fear as a, as a pastor, as a proclaimer of the word of God, my, my greatest fear isn't, isn't that you would, you would walk out and be like, oh, that was okay today. My greatest fear is that you would walk out and not know Jesus. That's, that's why we gather every week to proclaim him. And so if you haven't trusted Jesus, would you be so bold this morning as to slip your hand in the air? Before you slip your hand in the air, notice I'm not saying if you, have, if you haven't come to church, slip your hand in the air. Church don't save you. Jesus does. So if you haven't trusted him, Really put your faith in him, not a mental ascent, not a check. Yes, I did. No, I'm, have, you, have you trusted him as the Lord of your life? If you haven't, would you be so bold to put your hand in the air?
every head bow. If you want to say, I want to trust Jesus. Like I want to genuinely put my faith in Jesus so that I can spend eternity with him. Just slip that hand in the air. Father, I pray this morning for those that are wrestling. I'm like, I'm, I'm just, I'm past the days of thinking that everybody's saved. I'm past the days of loving people to hell. Gospel is what saves. And Father, we need it today. Thank you for the Old Testament prophets that talked about Jesus. Thank you for the New Testament apostles that proclaimed him. Father, would you help us to walk out of here and really be Christians that believe it really is finished? Like in a few weeks, we'll talk, we're going to be talking about it is finished, but would we live as though it is finished? May we not live as though, may we not trust the gospel and trust the finished work of Christ, but then walk away and live as though it depends on us. These persecuted believers were encouraged to trust in you, to love you, birth genuine love in us, birth genuine affections in us. Father, may we walk away being more bold as believers. May we walk away realizing that there are others that are close to the fire. Pray that you would snatch them out of the fire as well. He told us in Jude, I guess verse 24, to be merciful to those who doubt, but others snatch them out of the fire. This morning, we pray for boldness in here. Pray for those who are dealing with hardship that don't know where to turn. I pray that they would trust their own salvation. They would trust you. That one day they will not go through always. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for gathering around the word. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you for the gospel. We say that again. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ dying on our behalf. Father, sometimes that message becomes so common to us. The reality is it's everything. In Christ's name we pray, amen.